Welcome to the Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm Christine Grimmett, and in today's episode, we're featuring Heartbeat Housing Specialist and Director of the Maternity Housing Coalition, Valerie Harkins. She's put together some of the frequently asked questions that she gets about housing ministry, startup homes, those who have existed for a while and just still have questions, um, or those who are already running a pregnancy help organization and are considering partnering with or starting a home as a part of those services that they offer. And if you haven't taken a look yet at what our annual conference offers, now's a great time to check that out. Find out how your organization can participate either virtually or in person. And workshop tracks include leadership, fundraising, client care, housing, and more. So you don't want to miss this. Head over to heartbeatservices.org to find out more about registration. Or if you have questions for us, you can email support at heartbeatinternational.org. I'll pass things off to you, Valerie. Okay, welcome everyone. It is a pleasure to get to connect with you today and deliver some information to you. My name is Valerie Harkins. Uh, I am the director of the Maternity Housing Coalition here at Heartbeat International. So today I have a fun one for us. I am going over uh, frequently asked questions that we received during our maternity housing consultations. So uh, for those of you that are not familiar, um, each of our maternity home affiliates uh, receives access to a cost-free housing consultation um, at least once a month, sometimes depending on what's going on, maybe twice a month. But this gives each of our affiliates a time to sit down and for half an hour ask questions about whatever their current fire is that they have burning that they need to put out. If you run a maternity home, I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so this is really just a, if you would, a um, a helpline for the maternity home as opposed to for our clients. This gives them a chance to ask all kinds of questions that maybe they uh, don't even know where to begin Googling or where to start or if this idea has been tried before, et cetera. So today I'm going to be running through a couple of those questions. This is something that I am looking forward to doing periodically. Uh, if you are interested in receiving uh, that link in order to um, have a consultation yourself, feel free to email at housing at heartbeatinternational.org. It's housing at heartbeatinternational.org. So let's jump in. Uh, first question on my list that I have is about housing vouchers. Uh, and it says, how can my agency start providing housing vouchers? Or is that something that we cannot provide? Uh, and if we can't, who can help my clients with housing vouchers? So this subject of housing vouchers comes up quite a bit because we know that uh, many of our residents or clients in our communities are referencing this uh, housing voucher genie that exists out there or seems like a genie. Um, and, and so what this is, is this is a, a federally funded and run program uh, that is operated by um, HUD housing, by, by HUD through Section 8 housing. This The HUD takes the funds from that and distributes largely through counties. And then local counties end up dispersing those funds to um, individuals or HUD-approved properties. This is primarily how you might hear of uh, women able to have what they call a free apartment 
or a um, their housing voucher, or maybe a voucher that gives them discounted rent or what they might feel is cheap rent. Um, there are a, a plethora of programs out there. So if you would like to participate in that, what that means is that you would have to uh, be qualified or be approved under HUD. So with the HUD programs, what you'll find is that you'll have your local public housing agency. That's called a PHA. HUD will refer to your local, it's called a PHA. You will want to connect with your local PHA. I can't tell you what that is because not only is it different per state, uh, it's also different per county. But this happens in a couple of different ways. One, housing vouchers are provided through HUD directly to the uh, individual through the housing choice voucher program. Um, this is based on some research that, among many things, suggests that when an individual is able to choose their, um, their housing, they choose housing that uh, better or best suits them and remains in one place longest. That's the idea behind it. So that those are funds that go directly from HUD to the individual. The individual takes those funds and is able to then use it to pay for rent um, at a list of approved apartment complexes or homes, whatever the housing situation may be. Um, secondly, if you would like to learn how to qualify to accept vouchers on behalf of your residents, right? Um, so this would mean that you're not quite an approved project, but you're also not the individual itself. This is a nuanced area, but can be done. Uh, so th this can be a, a bit of a competitive selection process, but it is available in each county. There will be a um, a variety of things that you will need to do that are pretty steady across the board. Uh, for example, inspections. There's a, a hefty list of inspections that uh, meet a standard of, um, of uh, habitation in that area. And so uh, your local PHA will let you know which inspections you will need and how you can become approved in that way. That is a little bit more difficult. What is done more often is for you to become a property approved for project-based voucher programs. Now, project-based voucher programs are when an entire property is approved for Section 8, right? And this could be um, a large apartment complex or maybe a quadruplex that your nonprofit has built. Um, different counties have different requirements, of course. This selection is competitive. However, if you want to uh, become involved with housing vouchers, this may be the best bang for your buck or most worth your time looking into. What this means is that your entire property would be qualified. So every unit on your property would likely be qualified under Section 8. And then you would then be able to house uh, tenants to go into that property uh, as so long as you are operating according to whatever those agreed upon admission or tenant standards are. Now, this is where it gets sticky. Um, you may It may take some time for you to go and meet with your PHA 
in person or even invite your PHA onto your property to review your property to see that in your instance that you are not a traditional um, large housing complex, but that you are a dedicated and niche program for a specific type of resident. This can be approved. For example, there are some programs that are approved for um, veterans or female veterans or um, individuals in recovery or even females uh, in recovery. There are niche properties that are approved, so it absolutely can be done, but know that it might take a little bit um, a little bit longer. So if you want to learn about this subject overall, uh, I would encourage you to start at um, the HUD website on our government. So it's hud.gov. And then look in there, put in housing choice voucher program, section eight, and it will begin to pull up preliminary info and you can sort of follow your rabbit trail from there. All right, next question. Um, are there homes available for minors? Yes, but yes, there are homes available for minors throughout the United States. However, uh, it is important to note that these are becoming fewer and more difficult to find. Uh, that is largely because the regulations upon homes that house minors have uh changed quite a bit over the years um, and oftentimes mimic or model those standards for foster homes for minors. Now, one thing to know is that there has been precedence made and now commonly is assumed that your uh, local department of family services or children's services, whatever your state calls it, um, is likely able and willing to approve what's called a special contract that will allow a minor to live in a maternity home that has not met every single standard of a large group home uh, foster care placement. So what happens in this instance is a maternity home uh, comes up with or agrees to specific living conditions and housing standards uh, for their small scale maternity home where they're typically housing one, two, rarely even three minors at one time. Um, so they are able to take that special contract before a judge uh, and, and have that approved where that minor is able to live in that maternity home and uh, almost always that minor is able to continue to reside in that home uh, if that option is available and if the minor is willing uh, continue to live in that home in order to raise their child for a period of time one years two years sometimes through the duration of high school even um, if you would like to find homes that are housing minors, you can give that a start at maternityhousing.com. Uh, we have a housing search tool there. If you're having difficulty, uh, maybe shoot me an email, housing at uh, heartbeatinternational.org. I could take a look at your specific community and see what we could come up with for resources in your area. Okay, this one is an interesting subject. I, I get this question quite a bit. Um, how do you quantify and qualify motivation in a mom to change her situation? Uh, that's nuanced. Uh, and I will tell you this. So first and foremost, let me let you know, there are um, multiple ways that have been attempted and are used regularly 
However, there is no definitive method, zero definitive method. There is not a formula that we can plug in that works and gives us reliable results. If it existed, I would give it to all of you in mass. However, it just doesn't. And that's because each program is different. Each community is different. Each resident is different. Um, and then beyond that, each resident has different life experiences, different mental health needs, different education needs, et cetera, et cetera. On top of that, every program has unique staffing and those staffing have different personalities and different approaches and different education backgrounds. So with it being so varied every time, I want you to know that this can be a moving target. But a couple of things that are put into practice by some homes uh, and are, I guess, maybe just the starting point uh, would be that some homes set standards or an expectation of that resident prior to move in. So this is oftentimes an expectation, uh, however low or minimal it might be. Homes begin with setting one expectation that they uh, ask that applicant to fulfill in order to complete the application process. And the home uses this as a standard to see the client's uh, intrinsic motivation uh, in order to do whatever is needed to be done in order to see their life begin on a new path. Um, sometimes this works, sometimes it didn't, doesn't. Uh, an example of this might be asking a an applicant to attend a scheduled appointment um, or complete a required task. So some, um, at some homes ask or require the applicant to attend uh, a or schedule an appointment at a local pregnancy center. That is where they will undergo a verification of pregnancy, maybe a drug screening, and have an, just an overall um, assessment done of their current gestation and well-being. Um, oftentimes, this appointment is used as a check mark to show that this resident is ready to follow through uh, and is genuinely interested in fulfilling the program of that maternity home. Uh, another approach is that some homes connect with or speak with that applicant multiple times in order to assess if their answers are consistent over multiple occasions. Uh, this will help, you know, maybe on the first phone call, a resident might, you know, come across as though they are uh, very driven, they'll do anything, whatever it takes. But maybe on the second or third conversation, uh, you find that uh, maybe that adrenaline has worn off a little bit and you find, well, you know, they're really not interested in doing this or that, or maybe they don't really want to work um, in this area or work this many hours or um, et cetera. You fill in the blank, whatever it might be, but you might get different questions over multiple conversations. So that can be helpful. Um, another is to inquire about personal plans and goals. This is helpful whenever um, an applicant is going to transition in as a resident and they begin to immediately transition into working their personal plan. Um, and they feel that gives them the ability to be in control of their plan. Uh, and they feel that sense of control over their plan. So they are in charge of 
what they're doing next. Is that education? Is that work? What type of work? How much work, etc. cetera. Um, but here's what I will tell you. Ultimately, this is a roll of the dice. Um, a resident is likely in a state of crisis and therefore in a state of survival whenever they apply to live in your program. And as much as I recognize that most of our programs are not emergency shelters, nor uh, should you be an emergency shelter if that is not what you are designed or called to do, that doesn't negate the fact that the resident or the application is still in a state of emergency. So we have to be aware of this to mitigate this uh, the difference between the two. Here's an example. I'll put it this way. If you were in the forest and imagine a bear is running, chasing you, right? This bear is gaining on you and you see one cottage in the woods and inside that cottage is your only place for safety to escape this bear. Here's a caveat. As you go get to the door, the door's locked and you're knocking on the door. And the only way you can get to safety is, is to convince the owner to open the door and let you in. Is there truly any limit to what promises or what you would agree to in that moment in order to convince the owner to let you in? For most of us, the answer is no. We would likely agree to nearly almost anything if only to get on the other side of the door to get to safety. And then, of course, once we settle down and our adrenaline calmed down, maybe it would take a couple of days, we would look around and go, where am I anyway? And what in the world did I just agree to? That is a common experience for many of our women. Despite best efforts in our application and interviewing process for maternity homes, uh, the experience and reality of the resident oftentimes uh, trumps our best efforts. And so we have to be aware of that. So I would I would encourage you to be mindful and to take that into consideration during not just the interview process, but during the intake process, perhaps even viewing that intake process as a three to seven day process, accounting for that time period where that new resident is going to calm down, her cortisol levels are going to drop low, and it's going to really begin to occur to her what she's really agreed to and what your program is truly all about. Um, I, I'll also just leave you with this one note as well. Um, I put this note in here from my own experiences that I will just share with you freely, and that is to uh, maintain a level of caution about over-investing time on this particular subject uh, in an attempt to prevent, to predict the future. Um, so be cautious about trying to develop the perfect formula to evaluate just the right resident that is going to uh, fulfill your program or accomplish your program in exactly the perfect way or in a predictable way. Relying on the odds of predictability, when it, especially when it comes to our residents, is shaky at best. Uh, there is always something unpredictable, unknown, or unexpected right around the corner. So uh, do your very best. Come up with whatever base formula you want to come up with and hold the results loosely. Uh, and this is really in an effort to guard your joy and, and to uh, maintain your posture of love. Okay, uh, questions about how to fund a maternity home. This is a loaded question. Um, I will tell you that in our uh, 
in our resources, we have quite a bit about this. Not long ago, we recently even just published a webinar with Cindy Boston, our uh, Vice President of Advancement here at Heartbeat International, uh, where she did a deep dive talking about what to expect for fundraising in 2024 and, um, you know, current approaches or practices to consider for funding your maternity home. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out if you're interested. Um, here's a snippet from that webinar uh, that I think she just really drove home uh, perfectly. And that was that if you're going to have the allocations of your fundraising broken down, a suggested allocation could look like this. 30% of your income coming from grants, 30% coming from major gifts, that alone 60%. Then mid-level gifts accounting for 15% of your revenue, 10% coming from monthly gifts and 8% from mailings. I want to highlight to you here that this allocation is not broken down according to um, methods per se, uh, as much as allocations. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is not broken down by, um, say, a social enterprise uh, how much should come from a social enterprise or even event space. We have many homes that are still very much reliant upon income from major events, right? Uh, but instead it's saying use multiple approaches in order to drive towards these general goals that might include a social enterprise, that might include um, an event that would definitely include monthly gifts. Hopefully that includes some uh, ongoing support from your local churches that would definitely include uh, partnering with uh, likely some local foundations or state level foundations for grants. Uh, if you want more info about that, definitely check out the webinar uh, that Cindy Boston put on specifically for maternity homes. Okay, and last but not least, uh, with all the different models of maternity homes available, how do you know which model is the best to start in your community? And I would say this is by far the number one question that I get in consultations. So let's start with breaking it down uh, with a simple owner overview. To put it straight, you need to start with analyzing the data from your specific community. Right. And so here's an example. You might start with looking up how many abortions were reported in your county last year, the last two years, perhaps in the last five years. Um, although you can pull this data usually, you know, on a state level and national level, uh, I would encourage you to look it up according to your county. Um, another approach that I I encourage every maternity home to do would be to contact your local pregnancy centers, uh, request partnering to with them to release uh, maybe a little bit of uh, just knowledge or information to you. Um, this will not be about specific residents, but they might be willing to talk to you about overarching trends. For example, how many clients that came to the local pregnancy centers reported a need for housing during her pregnancy? This might help give you an idea. They might say, you know what, we saw about 50 women last year that reported a need for housing, right? 
as you go through these things, you can begin to take this data and pare it down and to say, okay, well, of these women, um, I can develop a profile of a client. So for these women, what was the average age of these women? How many of these women had children in their care and how many? Um, that number will surprise you, by the way. Um, of these women, how many currently were employed and how many of those were underemployed? Uh, of course, we would measure, you know, how many were unemployed altogether. Uh, and then how many of these women reported living in or fleeing from a domestic violence uh, living situation? Maybe you want to look at their education status and especially um, their sobriety or recovery status. This is, uh, this is all very important. What it's going to do is it's going to develop a profile of what the typical need is in your community. What you would do is you would compare the results of analyzing your local data with your mission statement. You can then use our housing matrix that is available to our uh, housing affiliates through the Maternity Housing Coalition. Use your housing matrix, which to analyze which approach currently today best suits the clients in your community to accomplish your specific mission. And a trend will typically highlight as you look at these. Um, this, this might show that your uh, housing, your staffing model might really have an emphasis on providing daycare resources for uh, the uh, women in your area. Uh, perhaps it would be recovery focused. This is increasingly common among maternity homes. Um, education focused. If you are in a college town and you see that uh, women are really are expressing a need for housing support in order to carry her pregnancy to term while she is still in college or high school, then that would that would highlight that would rise to the top for you. Um, and this is it's on and on women with multiple children, etc. Um, and what you would do is you would look, you'd say, okay, well, um, I can see that you know in my community the women tend to be uh, mid to late twenties. They are unemployed or underemployed, uh, either or. They have little to no access to uh, daycare services in the area, and they are working hard to maintain their sobriety. Well, there you go. You've almost listed your program for them. That means that you would need to then design a program and a staffing model that uh, first and foremost is supporting women in their sobriety journey. Uh, you would want to make sure that it is helping connect women in a reliable way to um, quality child care. Uh, this might need to be evening or during the day child care, depending on her employment options. And then also looking for programming that's increasing her employability, right? Uh, and, and this this can look many different ways, but immediately you have your three focal points for your programming and you would build your staffing model off of that. So overall, what we know is when you are determining how to design your program, when to open your program, what type of staffing model to use for your program, we know that it is important that this is data-led. Um, one indicator that you may pick up on uh, that shows that you might not be leading with data in the moment is if you have a staffing model 
or a housing model or a program design before you have black and white data in front of you, then your programming is likely to not actually be supported by data. Uh, another way of saying that is once you pull the data, it is likely to contradict or shoot holes through the theory of how you want to provide a maternity home in your community. So I would encourage you to hold off, although you may be booming with ideas, uh, get access to data, build your spreadsheet, analyze it and really determine what's needed and then begin applying your ideas for what a maternity home would look like at that point. Okay, if this was helpful to you, if you have more questions, feel free to reach out. If you are a maternity home that is not currently affiliated with us, let me know so that we can get you uh, set up and affiliated. We have many benefits for our maternity homes to support them all year long, uh, including, of course, housing consultation as we've listed here. All right. Thanks so much. And you can always reach Valerie at housing at heartbeatinternational.org. If you have questions that weren't covered or if um, you have something that's specific to your organization, she can work one-on-one -on -one with you and help answer some of those questions. With that, be sure to subscribe to the Pregnancy Help Podcast so that you never miss an episode. And thanks for listening. <laughs>